Hello and welcome to Live or Just Blethering, a podcast where two thirty-somethings discuss the music we found and loved growing up. My name is Keith McLeod, and with me is my fellow host Chris Lavender. Today in our Live or Just Blethering, with our special guest Jamie Turnbull, we'll be talking about Hundred Reasons and Hell is for Heroes. Good evening, gentlemen. How are we doing? Good. How are you guys? Welcome, Jamie, to the podcast. Thank you for the the banter on the way in. I think we're my cheeks are already hurting from there. Just chatting this one, so this I hope this is going to be a good one. Keith, how are you t- today? Now that I've got through the intro, I'm great, man. Thanks very much. I mean, I can't wait to see how well you edit that together because that is going to be like building Lego. It will be seamless. You won't even know. You'll have forgotten. Oh, brilliant. Well, thanks everyone for coming back. If you're new here, uh, welcome. We are alive, just blethering. Today, we're going through two albums from two bands, which is something a bit new. But also, just to add to that, we've brought on our friend to join us with the chat today, Jamie Turnbull. Hi. Jamie, it was during Keith's wedding, uh, me and Jamie had a conversation and one of these albums came up. Keith mentioned doing the album last week, and here we are. Huzzah. So for anyone who doesn't know, Jamie is a freelance producer who works out of Post Electric in Edinburgh, and as Lav mentioned, has Rearview Wedding Band. Absolutely. Played, played your wedding. Because yep. we're so cool. Well, but you didn't play Lav's wedding because he's a dick. <laughs> oh, but, but, but the people who played my wedding were your friends, Keith, so... Yeah, they're all right. You know, <laughs> not they're not on a podcast with them, am I? Good point. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, awkward. But we're here today to talk about some. What are we here to talk about today? Are we talking about some some emo? Are we talking about some post hardcore? Are we talking about some alt rock? We've got two bands on the go. The, What's our the, thoughts? The, the new wave of British emo metal. Yeah, post Apple Core, um, <laughs> something or other pre tween core. Who knows? They were so. I think I mentioned this on the podcast last week when when we we talked about this, and I sort of remember people referring to these guys at the time as being like part of the British emo wave. You know, to be on par with Funeral for a Friend, etc don't think either of these bands relate to Funeral for a Friend in the slightest. Different. Agreed. Very different sound. They've got a much more indie, I don't know, indie as a genre vibe to them. Got Definitely. that that sort of garage band feel about them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just not quite as metal as Funeral either. You know what I mean? Like just, yeah. It's just, it's just, I, I would have just called them an alt rock band personally. Yeah, like Faf, you know, we, we take it back to the very early Faf and there's absolute metal roots there. There's the not end of heartache. That was, uh, this year's most open engaged. heartbreak. This year's most open heartache, and you know, and that's that's quite riffy and stuff. These guys, I think, have their heavier moments and, and they definitely sort of punch through on, on, on a few levels, but never were they, never were they, would I have said these guys were actually emo. And I'm pretty sure I disagreed with that at the time. Yeah, I'd go with that. I think there are more... I don't know, they're just, just rock bands. Alt-rock's a really sensible way of putting it. Interestingly, with mentioning Funeral for a Friend, it's kind of the sound that they took on when they went on to Tales Don't Tell Themselves. I'll, I see what you're saying. 
but yeah, we've got two two artists that were very different, but also in going back, very very similar. Um, we've been sort of dancing around it from before we started, like where where we sort of found this. So, Jamie, where did you discover Hell is for Heroes and Hundred Reasons? What was your sort of in to those two bands? MTV two. Hmm. without a doubt Silver was just on like super rotation on MTV2 as I remember it at the time just constant uh, and Hell is for Heroes I'm not quite so sure to be honest with you um, I went to see them and I, could, I might have been dragged along just like oh you got to come and check this band out um, and you know went along and it was at Liquid Dreams I don't really remember seeing them on MTV2 to be brutally honest for me, it was, I think I remember Hells for Heroes kind of first, because I want to say the video for I Can Climb Mountains, the one with the harmonics, was sort of quite prevalent. And when that came out, I was like, ooh, oh, this is cool. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm like, let, let, let's check these guys out. And then I'll find you for, for 100 reasons, just hit you like a brick in the face. Like that, that was just such a good, cool, happy, like, song that i was totally up for that totally a very bouncy album i think listening to ideas above your station above our station sorry absolutely i think like interestingly for me like i bought it because i used to work next to hmv and virgin and i used to go there all the time on my lunch breaks and take advantage of the kind of like you know five for 30 quid cd offers and stuff like that and i, I just took a punt on it because i'd heard silver so much and like even now, like Silver's not my favorite song on the album by a long way. But when I got that that record and I put it in in my CD player, you know, and then that opening track, like dan it, dan it, dan it, like oh yes, here we go, this is incredible. And you know, just you know, the rest of the album is the same. It's it's, it's amazing. It's going to be what I'm going to maybe try not do here is compare the two bands because I think. They came out very similar times. Hells for Heroes, no, 100 Reasons. We're going to do that a lot tonight. 100 Reasons was actually first. They came out in 2002. Hells for Heroes followed shortly after in 2003. But I think even now when you look at these bands, they're doing a bit of a comeback, a bit of a reunion tour and they're touring together. I think they were always put in the same in, in the same basket together. And right or rightly or wrongly, I, I'm going to try and not compare the two albums on this no, I, th- I think you're right man i really do um because like yeah they are quite different bands there's quite different set of production everything about it but yeah i mean obviously you'll know that uh the two bands are doing a reunion tour in march next year yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're still you know marketed together and they've, they've obviously found a good relationship there to work with each other and get involved interesting that you should say not to compare them but there's a lot of similarities that i'm just saying just on the face value of it so we talked about the sound they had this sort of alt rock they were very distinctly british but they had some americanized sensibilities in them and it's interesting that both albums were actually recorded in the states that surprised me to be fair given how sort of not clean they are yeah, I mean, the production on, like, particularly um, 100 Reasons album is incredible. And they used really hip studios in New York. 
you know, they used a place called Magic Shop, first of all, which was based around this, like, Neve console. Sorry, I'm a producer, so I have to get geeky with all this stuff. You know, it was tracked to tape as well. There's no Pro Tools and stuff like that. And if you look at who has used that studio as well, you know, you've got Lou, Lou Reed, Sonic Youth, Bjork, uh, and Bowie. You know what I mean? So it's a really hip, cool studio that they used. And then with Hellas for Heroes, they used Sound City, which is, you know, unbelievably legendary. You know, you've got some amazing records from like over like 40 years that have been made there. Uh, Rage Against Machines debut album, Nevermind, you know, but then other stuff like Fleetwood Mac, you know, so much cool shit. Sound City, I've got an interesting little tidbit on. I don't know if I said this in the last time Sound City came up on this, but they, they're scared to paint the room. The, the drum room, especially. So the drum room has apparently got some magic sound that they are absolutely terrified. So the lino on the floor mm-hmm. is the original lino that was there the day it was built. Same with the paint on the walls. It's peeling off. They don't they don't want to do it in case it fucks it. The reason for that is actually really simple. As a room, it shouldn't work. Like if you put a physicist and acoustician into that room, they would be like, "This is this room is terrible. This should not work." So they they don't know why it works. So that's why they're scared to leave it. So that's it. They they don't know why this works, but it does. So they're just not going to touch it. Basically, even though you've got people walking in, wearing down the carpet over the years, or maybe leaving marks in the walls or whatever, like it will it will gradually it has to change with every person that walks in that room, however minimal, but they still refuse to, to do anything with it. That's that's funny. That's paranoia for you, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, I mean, I suppose we're talking about the production. I might as well just peel the plaster off straight away. In coming back to Neon Handshake, I was really sort of surprised by the sound of it. I'm not a producer. I can't really talk shit about it, but it doesn't sound great does it really agreed um i you know i listened to the album through today and maybe you could say it hasn't aged well you know maybe it was maybe it did sound quite good but you got that really hollow sounding kick drum which is super loud all the way through it and that drives me up the wall and i think that's a kick drum that has like nothing inside it so it's just you know it's being fully allowed to 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 resonate um which some drummers really like but for metal you know or or hard rock yeah if if it's a stylistic choice it's it's akin to the snare on saint anger do you know what i mean like you're either gonna (laughs) love it or you're gonna hate it and it's for me that's a bit far that I mean, if you're to say it's a stylistic choice, to me, everything sounds very compressed. It sounds very, you know, I think I said before we started recording, like it's as if they've recorded it playing down a plastic tube. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of noise without having the technical ability to describe what that actually is. I don't, I, you know, it just sounds weird. Yeah, and I think that like the way that the vocals sit for me is like odd. I can't really describe it particularly as anything other than a little bit odd um just again i can't really place it but there's just something odd about the vocals um and and where they sit in the mix like they're kind of super high but maybe shouldn't have been taking the sound quality side aside for a moment though i've gone into this album gonna hold my hands up to our listeners here i was i have no nostalgia for the neon handshake at all I knew the two. I knew two of the songs. She she drove me to it. I was going to say she drove me to daytime TV there for a moment. Very close. 
drove me to it and I can climb mountains. Those are the two songs that I knew, knew the intros. That's, that was literally my experience of Hell is for Heroes, other than just knowing their existence. I was just never into them. 100 Reasons, on the other hand, I have a lot of nostalgia for. That was, again, one of those albums you discover, you find it, hear the songs on MTV too, no doubt, Kerrang, P-Rock, Scuzz, playing them on repeat. I'd see, I've seen 100 Reasons live a couple of times as well. So I do have much more nostalgia going back to that than I did Neon Hanchik. So Neon Hanchik, I think I've got, I feel like I've gone in with a pretty blank slate. And I think the song writing holds up really well for them. It does. Um, I mean, the riffs are, are great. And, you know, I was a DJ back in the day and it was super easy for people to talk to you. People come up to you when you're a DJ, you know, in a club and they're like, oh man, can you play that song that goes blah, da, blah, da, blah? And you're like, uh, yeah, sure, whatever. But, you know, when people come up and say, oh, can you play that song that goes be da bee, be da bee, be da bee, be da bee? And you're like, Nay bother, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Same with that riff, ba 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 da ba 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 da ba da ba da ba ba ba. You know, it's it's so good uh, and and so hooky, I suppose. You know, I think that's where coming back to this, and I might even have, I think I really sort of felt this at the time as well. I, I like Hills for Heroes. I like Neon Handshake. It together with Hundred Reasons. It was it was these these were bands I were listening to at the time. But it has sort of reminded me, I, I I actually sort of feel Neon Handshake is maybe a bit disconnected. You're talking about the vocals in the mix. The vocals vary wildly over the album. Like at one point the guy can sing or there's a bit of a screamy shout going on and just blurts out syllables. It, it sounds a bit weird to me. Then there's, there's, there's quieter moments on the album and I don't, I think, dare I say like Neon Handshake sounds a bit rushed. I think they got. I think they got a lot of attention from those two singles. She drove me to it, and I can climb mountains because they're absolute bangers. They're really great songs. And then, to me, it feels like they sort of rushed to make an album around that. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but you know, it's not an album of she drove me to it and I can climb mountain songs. There's a lot of variation and and, and a lot of things that they've tried don't know in coming back to it if it all landed quite so well as say those two big singles yeah i could feel you on that one for sure i mean yeah like we talk about like they tried a lot of things you know like yeah there's a lot of like kind of you know there's a lot of hooky stuff there's a lot of kind of like i was talking about this earlier on like where it feels like they were kind of pre into the ambient thing there's like a little bit of ambient stuff you know what I mean a little bit yeah. of clean stuff uh, and yeah with the vocals you know he can sing and then he's screaming and then there's that kind of punky sort of like you know English accent tinged thing going on as well so yeah it is a bit disjointed for sure that may be why I didn't quite get into them as much I sort of naturally lumped these in not with the post hardcore emo stuff that I was listening to I'm more associated Hell is for Heroes with the 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 bands so when you had like the d4 the coral the white stripes that was probably more where i pigeonholed them and that's i mean that's just what i naturally do is just put them with other bands that sort of sound like that but yeah they had elements that fit with the hundred reasons the rubens the your code neighbors milos and million dead but really they were more edging on that indie sound that, that british brit rock indie sound that 
I wasn't in, massively into, or at least I didn't think I was until I started listening to it. There's there's a band you've just mentioned actually that totally takes me back, and it's The Coral. I wasn't I wasn't <laughs> a massive <laughs> fan <laughs> of <laughs> the, the, the 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 British sort of indie new wave, you know, the sort of post Oasis, the post Brit rock bands, you know, like you're saying, all the the bands, but. Fuck me, the coral. That 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 first album they had was an absolute gem. My, my heart skips a beat. Skips a beat. Watch it. So good, man. So good. I think that was a band that skipped me by. Did they have that a song that went boom, boo do 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 or something like that? Oh, I couldn't say it. I genuinely only know that one coral song. It's just those bands that again they kind of would come up on MTV two sometimes, but they were probably more suited to. Uh, was it Q? Was that another yeah, channel? Yeah, Q channel, I'm sure. It was a little bit less less of the Kerrang and more the, the Q. Again, there was those jukebox TV shows, TV channels even. I was always deeply confused by VH1. What was VH1's jam? Like, what, what was that? Like, you had, you had a soul hour next to, like, a classic rock hour. I, I, I didn't, I have never got VH1. So when VH1 first came out, it was kind of marketed to a slightly older generation. So it was it was more like MTV for your mum. Um, <laughs> it was radio. It was the Radio Two of music. Yeah, totally. And I I think that they probably kind of like went a little bit hip now and again, but like we've probably never been able to shake that that kind of vibe. I remember VH1 coming out when I was a kid. Uh, and it was very like you know Marillion, Kaylee, you know Kaylee, and all that kind of stuff. Um, right. <laughs> whereas obviously I, MTV was all over the shop. It really was. Uh, MTV was great. You could literally tune in one hour, and just like like you were saying, they're jumping from soul one hour and then classic rock the next. The original MTV before it became a total shit show in in two thousand. In like in the nineties and eighties, MTV was absolutely banging. You could tune in at five o'clock and you'd have Headbangers Ball yes. with Beavis and Butthead. Yeah. And then you'd come back and it'd be something totally different. Watch I remember watching like Dyer and well, Dyer was probably a bit later on, but certainly Headbangers Ball and Beavis and Butthead, watching those when I was like I would have been about seven years old sometimes. So it was a cartoon though, so my my mum and dad might not quite have noticed what I was watching. Nice. Yeah. We've uh, we've talked a lot about these these channels and these stations because it's where we found a lot of music growing up and stuff like that. But like, I really fell off those channels when you kind of get that little bit older. The 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 polish or the the of the of the channel itself sort of goes away, and you realise you get more adverts than you get music. Yep. Like it just it became soul destroying. I think the thing with like particularly MTV two for me was like it did become this very commercial entity, you know. What I mean, and at first, of course, it's a commercial entity. Let's be honest, it's MTV, but yeah. at first, it seemed to have this hip, cool, you know, metally rocky thing. But then all of a sudden, you're starting to get bands like you know the Manic Street Preachers and the other well, the, the Stereophonics, which don't get me wrong, great bands, but like I never felt that they kind of belonged on that channel. Um, and that was the thing that kind of led me away from it, as I remember. I had an opinion that if it was on a Now album, it didn't really belong on MTV Two. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how how accurate that would be. Going looking back, fuck you, Foo Fighters. <laughs> I don't remember Foo Fighters ever being on any Now album. I'm just assuming they were. Surely, a Foo Fighters song has been on an album, a, a Now album. Maybe later on. 
And you know, Rolling by Limp Biscuit was definitely on an M album. Oh, yeah. And definitely on, and definitely on They MTV don't belong on MTV2. They do. <laughs> they are the antithesis of MTV2. They were, they were a Kerrang band, you know, that new wave. So what, Lav, you said you've seen 100 Reasons a few times. Where, where did you pick them up? So uh, the first time I saw them live was uh, at Newcastle University in the basement. So trying to sort of picture if any, anyone, any of our listeners in Edinburgh, probably, probably the equivalent of like seeing them in Sneaky Pete's yeah. or maybe something a bit, a wee bit bigger, probably something in between Sneaky Pete's and what was the venue and the support acts absolutely blew me away. So there was the first problem with that show as, as good as hundred reasons were as a live act, the support acts stole the show. So just before 100 Reasons, the second support was a American emo band called Census Fail. Oh, wow. I remember those guys. Yeah, yeah totally. And the opening act was a, a little-known band that you might have heard of, uh, Biffy Clyro. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, Biffy Byro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they, they were the opening act, and they, fucking hell, they stole the show. So being like two feet away from Simon Neal screaming black and sky in your face was absolutely incredible. And that was the moment. I mean, I'd, I'd heard Biffy Clyro in that before then. I think I'd seen them sort of at a, at a show by accident in Middlesbrough once. And this was the first time I actually like stood and watched them live and was just utterly blown away by them. And you just knew right then, I was like, this band's going to do something. The other bands, they're they're going to be there. They're going to exist, but this band have got something special about them. And did did Biffy Clyro go and do something? I'm did, uh, judge is still out on that one. <laughs> jury, the jury's still out on that one. <laughs> the jury is out. They made an album or two, I think. Possibly. <laughs> I'm sure they <laughs> they are now at a level where it's very difficult for them to play just gigs. They have to play festivals. Yeah, man. Oh, so they're at that. They're probably at the um, Black Holes and Revelations Muse phase right now. They can't just do a show. They have to do a stadium. There is no... I mean, I, the last time I saw Biffy was at Barrowlands when they did the special shows. They played three dates. Each date, they did two albums. Jings. And I was on the mailing list to get the, the tickets ASAP. And I literally, one minute past three, three days of shows it was bananas i mean that was barras the barras is what a thousand two hundred cap something on those lines i think it's about a thousand or so maybe bigger is that i think it's about 18 to 2 i think off the top of my head totally so wrong. yeah they can they can sell the bars if, if biffy wanted to just do they could literally just go and sell that out seven days in a row without Without fail, there it's probably that's a, probably a Glasgow thing. They're a Scottish band. They're from Scotland. People yeah, from no, Scotland definitely. Love um, according to the Googs, Barrowlands is nineteen hundred. There we go. Aldi, I was pretty close. Good shout. Average, yeah, definitely. Barrowlands, though, what venue? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm just thinking there. Look, to, to, so I have a couple of jibes at Biffy. You know, there, there's going to be a few thirty some things in Scotland as well that have you know just a, a puzzle piece tattooed on them. <laughs> you know, Very you know, there's definitely a few people. And hey, I've got some band tattoos. I'm not. I'm not trying to like diss people for that. But that's sort of my memory of of Biffy Clyro at the moment. 
Yeah, they were they were, they were good, and I, I I think I think for me it was Black and Sky, Vertical of Bliss. There was another one in between that, and then uh, Puzzle. Puzzle was probably the last album, and I remember listening to it, being like, I don't think I'm going to like what they're going to come out with next. It was a it was a step change, and that's when Only Revelations came out, and I was like, Oh, that, that they are a stadium band now. They are a they are a stadium rock act. Fair enough, good for them. I wish them all the best. Every album I've listened to since is just, I can literally sit there in the car as I'm driving along, hum along to it as if I've heard it a thousand times. It's that formulaic. Um, yeah, agreed. Makes money. And, and, they're, and, and they're headlining download next year, which I find really odd because, like, fair enough, they might have gotten away with that, like, at a period in their life, but, like, some of their stuff is super poppy, and I don't get it, personally. Probably download got bored of playing the same three bands. <laughs> There's only so many times you can get Iron Maiden and ACDC to headline. Yeah, them. and Metallica or Alice Cooper or Insert. <laughs> insert aging rocker that needs money here. Slayer. It's, you know, that's... that's there's, there's like literally two of them left. Slayer. Yeah, that's the that's the <laughs> rotating, isn't it? No, I sort of... I, for Hells for Heroes, sorry, for 100 Reasons, I've seen them once and it was Team the Park. That's where I sort of saw both these bands. And I think mm. Hundred Reasons have a video for Falter and it was filmed at Teen the Park, but I can't I can't find it. I have a distinct memory of of like a sort of live performance video intercut with the band mm. just kicking about this field and there's cups and it's a festival and it's I'm hundred percent certain it's Teen the Park. But I can't find the video online anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's just nothing out there anymore, is there? So for me, like I saw them at a, a fairly smallish venue that I cannot remember. It's either the garage or the venue, garage in Glasgow or the venue. I cannot remember. However, I do remember seeing them at Download in two thousand and six, second stage, and they were incredible. Like I really, really enjoyed uh, seeing those guys live. Is that hundred um, reasons. Yeah, yeah, hundred reasons. I also, like I said earlier, I've seen Hells of Heroes in Edinburgh at Liquid Rooms. They were really cool. Really liked it. I was kind of like the silly things that I can remember, but they all had these Epiphone Gothic guitars that had like you know blood red inlays on them. Right. And why I can remember that, and you know, not much else is totally beyond me. <laughs> I remember just I get another like vivid memory of of our interview on our music channel and it was generic question number five why did you start a band and one of the guitarists from hells for heroes replied because i wanted a gibson sg like he wanted he wanted to make enough money <laughs> to, to have a gibson or to be given a gibson sg and and that's why he wanted to be in a band <laughs> that's awesome that's i'm awesome. sure i remember gibson My- having like the sg having this was it was it not like a sort of black wood, but the, with a red grain and like sort of red dials and like a red pickup or something? The, the, the Gothic series that right. they, they they really pushed the Gothic series hard, especially in the, that like early mid two thousands because it was it was all the rage. So they were trying to just push those, and I think they were giving them away to some bands if they wanted to be sponsored by Gibson. Here's six guitars; they all look the same. Smash them up, you'll get more. Yeah, Gibson SG Voodoo. I've just, I've just voodoo range. That was it. it. Yeah. That's oh, the one. that's so cringe. Look at it. Is that one of the green yeah. strings as well? This Did one they... doesn't. It, it has a little red skull in one of the fret inlays. 
Yeah, I think they were like I think they were absolutely disgusting guitars, and maybe the reason why they were giving them away is because like, oh my god, these are horrible. Nobody wants them, so let's just start like punting them out to. If I remember right, they made of some bands. really rotten wood. Like there was, it's like swamp ash. They're not made of like maple or anything. I'm sure it's some shit wood they used to make them. <laughs> uh, it was all like matte, you know. Um, finish and stuff like that yeah just minging minging guitars unlike unlike 100 reasons who were using amazing telecasters and gibsons like you know using great guitars well we are we are sort of finding a a place where the we're sort of leaning more towards the 100 reasons sound and production being a little bit more pleasing than 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 what we sort of found on <laughs> on a neon handshake see i think it's a bit more than that though because like one of the things when thinking back, like about that album, like if you have a look at what what was around at that time, and particularly the year before that, like two thousand and one was a monster year for commercial alternative rock music. You know, you had Alien Ant Farm, Blink One Eight Two, Creed, Hoobastank, Incubus, Jimmy Eat World, Nickelback, P.O.D., Puddle, you know, blah, 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 blah. So one of the things that like, I really loved about Hell is for Heroes is that, like, the SI for a hundred reasons, is that they were against the green. You know, you had a bunch of guys who didn't really look like rock stars. You know, yeah. They had bad haircuts. One of the, you know, they were a little bit overweight. You know, they 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 looked like they'd just fallen off their sofa, skinned up a fat one, you know, and and then went on stage. Whereas all these other other things like Alien Ant Farm and Creed, you know, you got chiselled people with like labelled clothes and you know music videos that had concepts and all this, you know, so so much money. And then you had, you know. Hundred reasons with like them in a in a white room just playing, um, and yeah, I, like that for me that was a big part of why I liked them. At that time, was just like oh, it was like an anti-hero thing. Yeah, I th- I think that's what surprises me about where these albums were produced. You're right. Look look at like the perhaps predominantly American bands you named there, and and look at the the way like you've actually just named half our back catalogue: Incubus, P.O.D., <laughs> Jimmy Eat World. You know we've covered all these bands, and and you're right. There was that American shine to them, and you had frontmen like Brandon Boyd or bloody Fred Durst, like with these massive personalities, and. Hundred reasons look like they've just came out of a physics lesson, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Cox maybe could have played keyboard for them at one point, and <laughs> they produced an absolute banger of an album. It's it's I definitely sort of it's enjoyed funny. coming back to to Hundred Reasons more. It's funny you should say physics teacher because if you go on the Wikipedia page for ideas above our station, it lists an individual called Paul Townsend as um, yes as the guitarist now i was like oh what's he been up to these days paul townsend's british physicist i'm like reading it's a totally different person like someone has cocked up the links (laughs) here like there is no chance that in 1976 he received a phd from brandy's (laughs) university (laughs) considering he started a band in 1999 like no way i did read that maybe maybe i had that sort of subliminally in my head i I did sort of clip in that link as well but on the subject of paul townsend his song silver 
the where he predominantly does the the, the verse vocals is awesome. It's one of the best songs on the album. It's my favorite song. It is my yeah. favorite song. It's that even and I, I don't want to diss Colin because Colin's vocals throughout the album are absolutely solid. Great. But man, he could he had some pipes on him, Paul, and he could sing, and that song is really heartfelt. And there's just some something about that song. It's just so well written and so well layered. It just fills me with joy every time I hear it. Uh, his, his, his vocals are really raw, like you said on it. I mean, it's actually not my favorite song on the album by a long, a long way for some reason. Actually, um, I said that earlier on. Silver was was just the song that got me in there, and when it, when I when I got the rest of the album, I was like, oh, the rest of the albums where I, where I really sort of found my place, if you like. What well, so kind of for such a blasey question, like what what sort of is your preference of of the singles? Like, is it I'll find you or? Um, yeah, if I could, I think it's probably going to be my favourite. You know, just everything about that, the way it starts, you know, that you know, type thing. And, and you yeah. know, even just, you know, the riff, it's so dumb. You know, but like for some reason, I like that, you know, like that that doesn't offend me. Some people are like, oh, if you could only played that in like 13, 12, it would have been far more interesting. You know, nah, screw that. You know what I mean? It is hooky as well. You know what I mean? It's got such a hooky chorus. And I really like Colin's vocals. One of the things that I really like about him is that his lyrics are really accessible. And what I mean by that is that there's no, you know, double entendres or like metaphors in there. Like he's really straight up about the way the things he sings. But also he's got a great a great way of making something a hook. Uh, you know, the song answers, and I will ask of no one. Like, they must sing that about 1,300 times with like, you know, 1,400 harmonies attached to it, but it never feels old to me, you know? So yeah, for me, If I Could um, is definitely the one for me. Uh, I'll Find You is definitely a big one for me as well. Uh, Faulkner's great you know of course it is it's it's the it's the ballad and you know everybody likes the ballad i guess um but even the other ones you know like i don't think there's a bad song on the album really there's songs that i like more or less that's a fair comment but i genuinely i like i genuinely love that album from start to finish and i never get bored of listening to it i'm just trying to find the line choices that he hath made i thought it was i'll find you but is it not not sure, man. To be honest, I'm just looking. I'm looking at the lyrics of "I'll Find You," and I could have sworn those because you're talking about like his lyrics and how they're accessible, and and you're you're right. I, I like a lot of the, I like a, all of the album. Like I think it's coming back to it. It's been a lot of fun. It's 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 a really great, light, enjoyable album. And I swore there was a line choices that he hath made, and I just sort of wanted to celebrate the fact that he got the word "hath" in there, but maybe Is I'm that completely not falter? wrong. Is that not a fault of the choices you have made? Da 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 The one that I Who think what well just well well Keith's searching that one up. I think it's interesting that it is as accessible as so throughout this week, going through Spotify, it's been laying up some absolute bangers to me since listening to these two albums. So and it's just reignited my absolute love for this side of the genre that i clearly didn't appreciate at the time but the the band that sort of stuck out for me is um million dead which is uh fronted by frank turner who's who's a very successful solo artist but before that he did 
a couple of albums with a band that he had called Million Dead. And basically, to me, Million Dead are really similar to 100 Reasons, except for the the lyrics and the vocals, because the I mean Frank Frank Turner is an exceptionally smart and clever man when it comes to writing his lyrics. And they're they're all very I don't know what the word is, but they're all like double meaning and not necessarily double entendres, but they've all got hidden meanings and there's all about anti-capitalism and stuff. So as a teenager, I'm full of angst, soaking that shit up. But then you get something like hundred reasons and you're like, Oh yeah, it's, it's nice to just sort of just enjoy it for a bit. See, like for me, right. The noughties, like early noughties and, and mid noughties is a super exciting time for British bands. You know, there were so many great British bands at a time where, you know, you've got Papa Roach and, and, all, and you know, the new metal thing still very prevalent. You know, I love 100 Reasons. I love Hells of Heroes. Funeral, incredible band, you know what I mean? And then let's not forget the band that nobody wants to admit that they liked anymore, Lost Prophets. Like, I really liked Lost Prophets. Um, oh, no. Cannot, cannot listen to them at all anymore. It's a shame. Uh, it is, but it is what it is. You know what I mean, and 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 I don't really want to give the guy any more <laughs> uh, than he's already had of attention. But you know, there were some cool bands, and then there were some other sort of like mid-level bands that were a bit more commercial, like Feeder. Feeder were a great band. Feeder's early stuff in the nineties was superb. Ash, yeah. um, Wilt from Ireland. You know, there were some incredible British bands in the nineties. And for me, there's just something about that era that just really stands out as being exciting in Britain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that these bands got picked up on such big labels for their earliest albums. I mean, there's, there's, um, I mean, Ideas Above Our Station, if anyone wants to go through the personnel on that album, it's it's some some big names involved in it. Some callbacks to some other albums that we've we've reviewed on the sort of discussed on the podcast. We've got Dave Sardi was producing, Greg Fiddleman on engineering. That name, he has done so much. Well, I've got to go back to Sardi. Like Sardi's uh, credit list is outrageous and so eclectic as well. I mean, you see, he mixed another. Um, tragically underrated album in my opinion One Hot Minute by the Red Hot Chili Peppers mid 90s album like I love that album um, you know, was that the one with like, um, Dave Navarro Dave, Dave Navarro on yeah yeah and nobody really liked it because it was it, it was I can only describe it as a sarcastic record you know what I mean like it's kind of it, it's bittersweet but it sounds great and it's raw you know what I mean Golden State by Bush is one of my favourite albums as well I know you guys covered that that sounds really cool uh, as well and it's you know it's really sort of like honest and brutal uh, you know what I mean and, and I love that but also if you look at his extended release, he's worked with the Stones Head, Automat- Head Automatica yeah. uh, Mel C Johnny Cash you know, I mean, it's incredible what Sardi has uh, has done in his career, uh, and he's done an amazing job here. Obviously, it's it's not just musically as well. The guy's down for for some film scores and and credits yeah. there as well. So he's done Zombieland, both the Zombieland, Zombieland, both Zombielands. Zombieland's related back to a previous podcast with DG Format, where Ruben Fleischer directed DG Format's music videos off of music for the mature B Boy. A Ghost Rider, all right, take it where you will of that film. 21 Jump Street, 
end of watch sabotage that's pretty sure it's a yeah it's a an, an Arnold Schwarzenegger David Ayer film so like the guy's done some not 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 just music credits like he's done some big things with 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 like film scores etc absolutely massive in the industry absolutely massive well, I suppose what did surprise me a lot about his credits is he's down his mixer for quite a few. A lot, yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, to be honest with you, like I, I suppose I'm more interested in the the mixer side of it purely because, like, I, I think that's something that has such a big impact on like the overall tonality of an album. Uh, and he's mixed some absolute bangers. What would you say is uh, probably just touching on what you do then, Jamie? Is what would you say is like the the biggest differences between an engineer, a producer? And a mixer, do the do the three sort of work together, or or is it are they really distinct roles? Well, they are really distinct roles to a certain extent, but but there's the roles that can be like done together. So if you take the role of a producer, like the producer's really there for like the artistic vision of the album. So if you bring in a producer, you know you want his or her's artistic vision. So they will kind of come and say, well, you know, maybe you want to change this, or, um, you know, maybe you want to try this, maybe you want to use this pedal, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they also have a, you know, in the sort of higher end stuff, like they have a business sort of side of it. So like they'll maybe manage budgets and stuff like that. But essentially, and this is kind of where we have to remember it, it's the music business is that they are responsible for providing a product that is ready for the particular yeah. market that it's supposed to be in. Your engineer, you know, they may have a role. So they may, you know, like I essentially engineer all my own projects. I, I'm not lucky enough to have a an assistant engineer just yet. You know, but that's obviously the technical side of it. And the really interesting part about the engineering side of it, of recording, is that um, I'm a big fan of uh, the two brothers, Lord Algae, Chris Lord Algae and Tom Lord Algae. Um, Chris Lord Algae has, like, all the Grammys in the world. Um, Tom Lord Algae has quite a few <laughs> of them, uh, but he does a bit more interesting stuff. Like, he does, like, Weezer and stuff like that. And... What he says is, like, as an engineer, like, if you just plug a microphone in, like, dry, gain stage, hit record it, you're not recording. You're cataloging. It's when you're an engineer and then you actually kind of pre-mix things going into it, that's when you're really recording. And I really dig that sort of thing. So, you know, for me, like, the reason why I choose to work at a post-electric studio is because there's, like, half a million quid's worth of analog amazingness for me to record with. And, you know, I can get all of the, the sounds and the flavours on the way in rather than just, like, plugging into, like, a Focusrite and just turning the gain up. That's, you know, not recording. And then the mixer, uh, which is actually the thing, like, I'd like to be when I grow up is a, a mixer. Because I love mixing. And, you know, obviously they're going to take the 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 recording they might have a they might have a rough mix you know they might have an artist mix um which could be really good uh and in some cases like you know a mixer will just say look your rough is better than what i can do so like well done sorry or they can take that and they can either add their own flavor to it they can exaggerate what they've done if they were involved with the production side of it and everything in between mixing is definitely where i get my my uh, biggest sort of thrill from so to speak so but yeah they're definitely three different roles but they're definitely a role that can be done by one person it's interesting you should mention the uh, the studio at post electric as that is 
run by is it Idlewild? Yeah, so it's run by Rod, the guitar player of Idlewild, and it's uh, considered to be their kind of home base, their HQ. And there's a band again from that that time period. We're back to I'm bringing it back to that 2002-2003 sound, where yeah. you know you you couldn't escape American English and all that sound. So again, they they were in that sort of just 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 to chuck them in that mix as well of of all those bands that were really just making some a really a really unique sound for the for the time it's it's hard to put my finger on anything else that sounded like that that british alternative scene at the time yeah oh there's so many great bands like that as well you know what i mean like yeah idol world and of course the fact they're from our hometown you know what i mean like yay but you know three colors red like you remember those guys you know even older bands yeah well, i mean you're getting maybe getting to slightly older i'm a i'm a wee bit older than you guys i'm not i'm the size of two guys in their 30s but i'm actually just one guy in my <laughs> 40s um but yeah like you know there is a lot of great British music out there that gets overlooked, in my opinion. Wild Hearts, you know, I mean, they have a total, almost cult following. Um, you know, I could go on and on and on about it all night. Wild Hearts is a band that sort of takes me back to MTV2 and Kerrang! Because I do remember those guys quite visually, if I remember correctly. The singer had yep, Ginger. Big Maybe. Ginger Dreadlocks. His name is yep. Ginger. Very, yeah, very, very punky style uh, and just sort of quite a quirky band for, for maybe 15, 16 year old me who was kind of, you know, looking at your, your polished, shiny incubuses mm-hmm. and your Limp biscuits or whatever and just seeing these like English dudes just ripping it up. I, they were from Newcastle, weren't they? Uh, and there was like, sort of interesting sort of, sort of story, but like I work with a guy called Tyler from a dog called, a band called Dogs de Moore, uh, and like Dogs de Moore people ended up starting uh, Wild Hearts and, you know, it's all a, a very small knit community, shall we say. Yeah. I know there's a few bands from, from Newcastle, which is where I'm originally from, that again, I would fit in there. I think I mentioned your codename as Milo earlier. A very like, almost I used to think of them as almost experimental. They were that sort mm. of different and janky um, sort of sounding, which very unpolished, very, you know, just very different to what anyone else was really doing so much at the time. Uh, another one that I think that kind of we've not said as well, I'm just going to name drop, is Maximo Park. Oh, yeah. Yeah, again, another just of that sound, that era, that that early 2000s indie rock sound that, that they did pretty well. And, uh, again, that 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 sound really suited Tea in the Park. That was the Tea in the Park sound. Was mm-hmm. all these these early two thousands rock bands. That was sort of my that was sort of my era because I started going to Tea in the Park in two thousand. I think my first Tea in the Park was two thousand and one. And yeah, like like we're saying, these these bands were all very much coming up at that time, and that's just what Tea in the Park was to me in those years we've talked about it before it's not what it is now you know it's it's changed quite drastically well it doesn't even exist anymore it's now transmit i, I was surprised to see transmit happened last I didn't weekend realize 
I've been I, I, to be honest, I'm shell shocked because yeah. I'm I'm gigging again for the for the first time in, in 19 months. But yeah, you talk about Tea in the Park, like uh, you know, I I discovered Muse on the unsigned talent stage from Tea in the Park. They played the song Sunshine, and uh, yeah. that first Muse album was like super raw as well. You know, I mean, it didn't have kind of you know big Rachmaninoff passages and you know all the money in the world thrown at it, um, like some of the the latter albums, which are amazing. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, like I know what you mean about Tina Park. Uh, another great band is you remember My Vitterol? Yes, and those guys. That's yes. a good band. There's ah uh, another band that comes to mind. They're not British. There's or are they British? Vex Red. Vex Red. Yes. Were they British? I'm pretty sure they were. Rings a bell. I'm just going through the Transmit lineup. And All right. Right. Well, before we do, before don't, we do, you're just gonna feel fucking old. <laughs> right, well, I've got the 2002 Teen the Park lineup from when I saw 100 Reasons. Okay. So will we compare Will we compare some, some stuff? Let's do 2002 first. Okay. And then, and then we'll all have a collective cry together <laughs> when we hear what Transmit has got to offer. Right. Uh, I'll just rattle off some bands from Teen the Park 2002. On, so we have 100 Reasons. We have yeah. Doves. Air, oh, Basement Jacks, yep. Idlewild, A, Less Than Jake, The Cooper Temple Claws, Rival Schools, who and who played before them was Hoobastank, good lord, Oasis, wow. Primal Scream, Chemical Brothers, Foo Fighters, Green Day, Jimmy Eat World, The Hives, Dandy Warhols, Beverly Knight, The Polyphonic Spree, I remember I oh, saw wow. Polyphonic Spree. Who is it? Was it? Is it Bill Bailey that's called them like the twats and white robes or something? Probably. I got my he was just like it was like a joke that like you're digging at them. I think he was like, piss off your twats and white robes. Because there's like about twenty of them. I'll rattle off some King Tuts. Uh Badly Drawn Boy, Ian Brown, wow. Mercury Rev, Sonic Youth. Joe Strummer, yeah. R. I. P. The music, the choral. That's amazing. Oh the that, music did they play? The music did play then. Yep, the music were there two thousand two. Hotly, hotly tipped to be the next oasis they were. Oh my goodness! Do you know? I, I, I always say this, but anytime anyone ever mentions Ian Brown, I always say it is the one concert I walked out of. I never got into Ian Brown, Stone Roses, any sort of that sort of stuff. That was that was that was my sort of anti culture, to be honest. I mean, Ian Brown has Ian Brown has recently made his uh, his place very well known, and he can. Go and fuck off as far as I care. Very little. Well, the mate, like, you know, taking out anything else out of it, the boy can't sing live. Like, it was awful. I was sitting there in that thing going, like, why has he got loads of money for singing? You know, and he opened up for the Manics. Who is is weirdly the band I've seen the most in my entire life. I think I've seen them like fifteen times or something. Always um, happens though, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he opened, and it was like, I'm gonna get out of here. Like, where where is the bar? Because <laughs> I need to drink myself into a stupor after listening to that. But anyway, I'm... what's what's the controversy you're talking about, love? Oh, he's he's just a tit anti-vax anti-mask dipshit. Oh, yay! Yeah, he's he's yeah. he's he's uh, even a, I think I'm pretty sure he's just people are just taking the piss out of him now. He's yeah, he can he can fuck off as far as I care. I'm just not interested in him. I was never interested in him in the first place, and now that he's gone and done that, I'm like, wow, I'm not even 
even even slightly interested in him anymore. So he can... Vex Red are from Aldershot, England, and so are Hundred Reasons. Well, there, there we you go. go. Yeah. So I that tea in the park for me, like that sounded really cool. You got some really great rock bands intermixed with some really great dance bands like Basement Jacks. Did you yep. say Chemical Brothers were on that that list as well? Yep. That is yeah, Chemical Brothers played Transmetal. There we go. You got one. Oh well, I'll give you that. We've got one. Right, okay, Lav, let's have let's have uh, transit. I mean, transmit. okay, I'm just gonna read through King Tut's stage. Uh if you know any of the bands or the these people, please say so because I don't. Becky Hill, Declan Welsh, and Decadent West. They're good. Dylan. Uh, De- De- Declan Welsh is a good band. Uh, I-, I mixed a live video for them at uh, Sweet Dram. Yeah, good band. Like them. Dylan John Thomas, The nope. Murder Capital, Mira May, Retro Video Club, Voodoo's, Mike McKenzie. Retro Video Club. Um, have they not been around for a while? They haven't even got a link. So some of them have got links, so you can click on them to find out more. That one doesn't have a link mm. behind it. Uh, main stage on Saturday, headline was Liam Gallagher. And okay. before that was Primal Scream. And cool. before that was Keen. Not cool. Oh, uh, Keen. Remember that guy got addicted <laughs> to sleepers? <laughs> just, oh, I just want to play cricket, but I keep on... T- yeah, I shouldn't mock someone's drug addiction. That's quite shit. But I just remember this story about Keen where the guy had to go into rehab because... Yeah, rock and roll. He played too much cricket and uh, had a slight addiction to sleeping pills. Wow. Uh, Twin Atlantic. They're a, they're a biggie. Um, yeah. And then the next one, KSI, YouTuber. Oh, uh, picture this. Seagulls, Vistas, Nathan Evans. Uh, let's see. who's, who's So the Sunday end was Chemical Brothers. So there's... That is cool. That is very cool because they are incredible. And But just before them, Snow Patrol. Oh, are they coming back? Oh, well, they they were on there. They they made it. Um, sure, how I feel about them. <laughs> Ash were on King Tut's stage. That's and cool. Yeah, I just I'm just seeing a lot of names like Lucy Blue, Aaron Smith, M S Banks, Ryan McMullen. Yeah, I am too old. That's all we're doing here, guys. All we are doing is cementing our age. We are. 30-somethings and a 40-something who are very much out of the loop, which is why we're probably on a talk podcast talking about bands that came out 20 years ago. I'm just going to say, though, that I have mixed one of those young whippersnappers that we talked about. So that makes me relevant in my field. Thank you very much. Well done. Very well, well said, Jim. It, it, it does <laughs> well, not earned it. Not at all, because everybody else I work with is like 60-plus and used to be big in the 80s. So. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, we've, we've had a bit about both albums. I can honestly say this, for both bands, this was where my journey with them stopped and started. Or started and stopped. I didn't go any further with either mm. band. And and I don't particularly know why. I think we've sort of discussed it with previous albums. Tastes change, you know. I definitely went into just last week's episode was on kill switch engage so i went a lot heavier sorry come 2003 2004 did did you guys stick with either band after this i didn't but after seeing them live there was other bands that came up there were other bands that took my attention away from them very quickly should i say 
I uh, so I bought a Shatterproof uh, is not a challenge. Is that the the, the that second the next album? One. I, yeah. I, yeah, I was really excited about it. Um, I had heard a couple of tracks from it live and enjoyed them live, but I didn't really enjoy the album. I, I feel terrible to say I didn't know. I didn't know there was another two after that uh, until very yeah. very recently. I think like with the second album. Uh, and I and I was thinking about this earlier on today. Like I think when you when a band goes from album one, two, three, four, like there has to be some kind of progression, yet still like recognizable. And with Shatterproof, it felt kind of like the B sides to the first album. Yeah. And another another album for me um, from a band that I absolutely adore is you know Black Gives Way to Blue by Alice in Chains, which was a big sort of comeback thing. I love that album, but the second album, the De- the Devil Put Dinosaurs Here, again, felt like just bland as anything. Yeah, just it was it was what didn't make it on the first album. Interestingly, Rainier Fog, I thought was a great progression from those two albums from Alice in Chains. So that's why for me, like Hundred Reasons didn't kind of do it for me after that it's just it just you know you need a little something you know what i mean like you, you, you need that fine line between the band you love and progression the band even themselves i think didn't really care much for shatterproof is not a challenge there's a there's a quote here on the wikipedia for larry from larry Hibbert. Mm-hmm. there were a lot of things that were wrong with shatterproof uh, a lot of it was to do with the fact that it had absolutely no working relationship with the label by the time it came out. There was lots of pressure to get Shatterproof out and to get the ball rolling again. They just wanted a record, any record. It just got put out and forgotten about. It still sold 65,000, but nobody quite seems to realise that. Which, yeah, I'd agree. I think their first album was just such... I think when you, when it would have been a difficult follow-up and because their first album was just so... I thought they were so well done. I thought they would be huge for years. Yeah, same. I, th- I think it's kind of what I was trying to touch on before. Like you, we, we, we thought, or I certainly thought at the time, these were two emerging bands that were going to go on to be massive, and I don't quite think either either band quite followed through on that. With with absolutely no disrespect to either band. Well, we all we know what sort of happened a few years later. We they got a couple of albums each, and then sort of separated and now they're they're coming back to redo those albums it sounds in a way in a very similar situation to what happened to faf only faf got one more big album out of it which was mm-hmm. ours yeah i'd say so they again though they they progressed the progression from casually dressed into ours was one that was it made sense it was it was in the right direction they clearly got tighter as a band and you could see them growing in their songwriting. I think the songwriting on ours is, is superb. Yeah. Um, then with this and, and with a lot of bands, yeah, that, that difficult second album, I think it, it's it's quite a common sort of trope that the, the second one sometimes just goes, nah, never mind. Mm. I think it's especially difficult when the first one is as good as it is. It really sets the bar. Mm. And if if the second one is just ever so slightly off that people just go nah never mind you've not got it kind of from what you were saying about the second album as well to me sounded very reminiscent of golden state yeah i can i can, I can hear that that i mean, i hadn't heard golden state before we covered it on the pod so i was completely oblivious to, to, to the album itself but you know there what you were saying it didn't have a lot of label 
middling. The label just wanted they just wanted it dumped. They just wanted a when you've got a four album, whether you've got a four album, five album deal, they just want to get an album that they can just shelve and mm-hmm. just say, yeah, we got one. Yeah, okay, so and then we'll get you off. Maybe the actual opposite of Golden State, because from what I remember, there was a lot of meddling there, and so. But either way, the end product, either band wasn't particularly chuffed with it. Yeah, it was, that must be a horrible place to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then, of course, Oasis kind of did the opposite. They just started putting out shite on purpose to, to get to, to fulfill their, their contract, you know, and uh, blatantly put crap out. You can do that. I think Oasis were big enough to do that and get away with it because they they had they had smashed it already. They already had two absolute you know chart bursting albums mm. with definitely maybe and um what's a story modern glory and then the third oasis album is fucking guff <laughs> oh, oh, what was it called again be here now be here now utter shite i bought that on the day of release uh, the master plan from, was good from, the, the b-side album was good um here's a really interesting thing so like i i've recently become a vinyl wanker um and i, 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 oh, I welcome welcome to the yeah, club yeah, yeah so i bought uh my my, my wife jill uh, a record player for her 40th a couple of years ago and since then we went from zero records to something like 600 it's a problem we have um but <laughs> The what's the story? Morning Glory is worth cons. The, I have the original vinyl of that, um, and it is worth considerably more than my original Sergeant Pepper. Really? And wow. Yeah. So original Sergeant Pepper is worth about one hundred and fifty quid. Original um, Oasis second album, four hundred or five hundred quid. I can give you a reason for that that I'm guessing without looking at any stats or any sort of real data on this Sgt. Pepper came out on vinyl it was released when all that was available was vinyl so there are more of it absolutely I would would argue and I'd imagine that Oasis selling vinyl in the 90s was more was fuck, imagine that being niche as hell in the 90s actually come to think of it yeah yeah totally i was so disappointed that um ideas was not on vinyl i was when i looked it up on uh on uh wiki i was like oh no it just came out in cd and digital i imagine they could get away with a press on that i, I imagine they could probably do a, a limited 20, run. 20, 20 year anniversary next year maybe hit up hit up colin and uh See what he's up to. Colin is a lecturer at college. Uh, he is, and uh, and Larry's a producer. But um, yeah, I would it would be great if they did a, a a vinyl press for the for the tour next year. I've already bought my ticket, and uh, I'll be I'll be there front and center, looking for vinyl. Just Lav and I had a <laughs> Lav and I had a little joke around uh, Larry because I messaged Lav and said, "Can't believe he produced Norma Jean." Yeah. Very much the wrong Norma Jean, and that it was Norma Jean Martin. No, not not Norma Jean, the post hardcore band. <laughs> yep. So I saw the the last time I saw Hell, either of these bands was Hell is for Heroes, and it was their farewell tour. They were they were packing in the 
packing up the tools and ready to call it a day and they played I went to their farewell tour I think it was of not 1998 Keith shut up I've googled it 2008 and it was the Barfly in Glasgow that was a great venue Ooh, what a venue cool so good there's so many little venues that you forget existed and they just had so much character and they were just great places to go and visit never mind the band but the actual venue itself was something it's why I love going to the Barras. It's it's one of those venues that I I might go to the Hundred Reasons Hell is for Heroes show purely because it's at the Barras. Agreed, and that's the thing. Like you know, sometimes you see a show at the Barras, and it's like you know, I got to go. I went I went to Baby Metal at the Barras. Like and oh my word, that, yeah, and it was amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been something. It was really mental. Uh, but again, like that venue is just incredible. It's also amazing how the Barras end up on live records. Like, like you wouldn't believe. So, like, um, there's an uh, Alice in Chains live record from like the, the 90s, and Man in the Box is recorded live at the Barras. Uh, and that's like, hi. I might have that. I did not know that was a Barras recording. Let's, I'm going to have to. Yeah, yeah. Go look, look, look at the sleeves, man. Look at the sleeves. Because again, you know, I mean, it's not like the whole. It's not like live at the Barras. It's just you know, it's just Alice in Chains live. But when you start to delve in there, it's uh, and then Dave Grohl is apparently that's his favourite venue in the world. Unfortunately, he can only fit in like a like a minuscule tenth of what he can actually play to in there now. <laughs> you know what I mean, I mean but, it's just uh, squeezing Dave Grohl's talent into there is hard enough. Never mind the fans. <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely but yeah the Barrows is an incredible venue um, there's something really special about it I love the fact that the toilets are still minging after <laughs> all the years that I've but been they're there. massive aren't they yeah, for anyone yeah. who's ever been to the Barrowlands toilets they, they go on for days they, <laughs> yeah you, you're, you're rarely queuing I, I can't speak for the women but for the men anyway you rarely queue to get into the Barrowlands Toilets, you're in, you're out, you're back in the show, and it's it's amazing. And yeah. the venue itself, to 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 agree with what you're both saying, is it is one of my sort of favourite venues as well. And like you're saying, Jamie, there are certain venues that when you see them playing there, you're almost like, not only do I want to go see this band, but I want to go see this band at that venue. Like I chose yeah. to go see Funeral for a Friend at King Tut's over Slipknot at SECC. Those guys played yeah. the same night in Glasgow one year, and I was like, I would go see Slipknot. I want to go see Slipknot. I don't want to go see Slipknot and Corn at SECC. In, mm. in a metal box. So, with... Yeah, so I went to King Tut's and, had a, and stood two feet away from the Faf guys and had an amazing time. That's the way it's done. Someone definitely be said for that. I remember being, at Download in 2006, when it was the same year I saw 100 Reasons, I uh, I didn't go see Corn on the main stage to go and see The Prodigy in the tent and... That was one of the best decisions of my life. That sounds like a yeah, no-brainer to me. That would be, yeah. <laughs> I, I am as as much as I can respect Corn for what they they brought to me in in the in the early days of new metal. The Prodigy mm. in a tent, yeah, done, hundred times yes. Yeah, man. Oh, it it was amazing. Um, absolutely. I'm just trying to go back actually, because Prodigy. I've played Tina Park a few times. Yeah. And I want to say they did, they just did one year where they were headlining. I think they moved to headline NME. They were maybe supposed to be like 
I don't know, third last, fourth last on main stage. And they got moved to headline NME because that headliner pulled out and they basically pushed the NME area past capacity. They were bigger than whoever was headlining that night, but on mm. a smaller stage. Wow. So I could believe that. that the night um, at, uh, at Download, the two things I can remember about that is, one, when I, when I came out of it, you know when you're, when you're in the bath for hours and you're like, your, your, your hands go all wrinkly? Pretty. That's what I, yeah, that's what I was like when I walked out of that tent. Uh, like People were laughing at me. It was hilarious. <laughs> I'm um, laughing at you. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. It's fine. Everybody does. But like, they were climbing the rafters at that, and like, the gig was getting like, you know, stopped constantly. And he's like, you know, he's like, get the fuck down, or we shut the fuck down. You know what I mean? And uh, trying to be dead cool about it. You know, trying to sort of like be like, you know, please, we respect everyone's safety, but I'm going to say it in a much cooler sort of way. Uh, that was incredible. And again, they were out the out the the tent. And the only other th thing that was impressive was uh, Keith, God rest him, his, his jaw swinging like I've never seen a jaw swing <laughs> in my life. And anybody that knows me knows I've seen a jaw or two in my life. <laughs> I never got into Prodigy. I, d I don't know what it was. There was, I suppose it's on the same line as Deftones. There was just a few bands that were massive and by all rights, I should have loved, but I just mm -hmm. there was something about Prodigy where I was like, I don't give a fuck about this band. It's for me, it's like it's the crossover of them that I always dug. You know, what I mean, like I can go to like you know a very mainstream club, you know what I mean, and and dance to the Prodigy, and then like the same night go to like a, a, a an underground goth club and. You know they're still playing Prodigy. Yeah, the crossover of them as a band is incredible. You know, um, that's a good point. I've always dug that. That's a very, very good point about Prodigy. They do just they just touch so many different genres with with their sound. I don't they like they clearly captured lightning in a bottle with what they did and just yeah. And I think a lot of it. I think a lot of it's down to Liam Howlett. Like Liam Howlett had an album called The Dirt Chamber Sessions. I think it's called, and it was like literally just his decks. Uh, like set up and he just played a set on his decks and he had like you know Cuban disco and everything mixed in there like the guy is clearly pretty good at what he does absolutely yeah um not I think that I just I think we mentioned the Chemical Brothers there earlier that is there is a band I would really really like to see perform live I can imagine they put on a cracking set. They they had two albums, sort of in the mid two thousands. Was it Push the Button and uh, what came out after that one? But those two albums were just flipping stunning, like totally flawless albums that that came about. Um, Absolutely, no. That's something like they all had a song. Do you remember the film Me Myself and Irene? Yes. Yeah. Right, so every time you know Jim Carrey was flipping into the Hank character, there was this kind of like big dirty drum beat with like a harmonica, and then kids going na 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 na, we're gonna rock you. Chemical Brothers, like brilliant track. Yeah, that that's that's the kind of thing they do. They just they just lay on these. There's some sounds that they've done that you just don't realize was them all the all along. I want to say my first exposure to Chemical Brothers was the Matrix soundtrack. Very topical at the moment, given the trailer was just released. But mm. that's... We talked previously about the 
Queen of the Damned soundtrack. <laughs> We've talked a lot about very... the Queen of the Sound, the Queen oh, of the Damned yeah. soundtrack, and, and that fuck story that happened. But there's definitely there's some just movie soundtracks that have kind of came up through the years, and Queen of the Damned is one of them, being very new metal. But I remember the Matrix as well. I think the Matrix was one of my first introductions to Rage mm-hmm. Against the Machine as well. Yeah, it's got Wake Up. Oh, really? Wake Up was the 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 end and title track, which was very mm-hmm. suitable given the the, the title, given the the events of the film <laughs> spoilers wake up <laughs> <laughs> have you ever uh, listened to the uh, mission impossible 2 soundtrack that's another kind of brilliant sort of new metal compilation uh with a little bit of rap in there and a little bit of this and that it's great oh, well, i don't think i've made a massive mistake it's not it's not chemical brothers on the matrix it's propeller heads oh Oh, the dun 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 Ooh, don't talk about that guy anymore. Yeah, he's 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 on the he's on the <laughs> he's on the naughty list at the moment, isn't he? Uh, he's 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 potentially. Can't. Anyway, no, uh, fuck that. Chemical Brothers were not on. Matrix but they should have been, man. They should have been. Still stands as one of those soundtracks, though. That was pretty, pretty ballsy at the time. I think we could easily yeah. do an episode on soundtracks, movie soundtracks, because there's some out there that are very memorable. Yeah, I agreed. To be honest with you, like I, I, I don't know if like if it's maybe that I don't watch a lot of modern movies, but the the movie soundtrack doesn't seem to be as much of a thing as it used to be. Uh, I've got some incredible movie soundtracks from over the years. The Faculty, as a, a terrible kind of like teen. Oh yeah thing uh had some really cool uh tunes on it uh the forest gump soundtrack is an incredible soundtrack for for you know all sorts of music mission impossible 2 as i mentioned matrix is great you know but let, i don't know like it just does... just let's not forget the american pie soundtracks that literally set of up course. those pop punk summers by the way oh, absolutely yeah. man yeah you know I actually have like a playlist of like stuff like Blink and Lit and Third Eye Blind and and I call it the the American Pie <laughs> playlist. There we go because it's just like so so topical. Um, but that, yeah, like, that's when I, mean, I discovered when was... the difference between a soundtrack and uh, music inspired by. Oh, the you get two albums from these, so there is the soundtrack again, just American Pie which had like 13 songs on it. But then there was another sort of follow the songs that were included in the film, but not featured on the soundtrack. And you have fucking, like there's just loads, like whole celebrity skin, right? Great track. That is on the, in the film, but it is not on the soundtrack. That's a bit unusual. Just one of those like little oversights. Yeah. So, and I reckon it must be money because there must be, a per second fee that Courtney Love charges to, to use that song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to to think of her like we we've just racked up like thirty dollars. Oh, I just said a name. Oh, I'm gonna have to pay a royalty on that as well. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we mentioned Nevermind, so the the Nevermind baby's probably gonna want to cover that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a fucking what a story that is, by the way. 
Oh my god, that guy has recreated that album cover so many times in his life for money because, like, I'm pretty sure you know, it, 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 he, I'm pretty sure he got paid for that. Uh, and how many times do you think he's been in a nightclub? Like, hey, yeah, I'm the Nevermind baby. He has it tattooed know. on his chest. He has the word Nevermind <laughs> tattooed across him. It's like, if I, I get, you know what? There's there's remorse and fair fair payment. I think they got you got his parents got like two hundred dollars. Back in 1990 for the for the print, which, okay, if you want a bit of extra money for it, you've got your fame. I think he even credited knowing the connections he did for getting one of his art projects out there. And then goes on to try and sue each band member 150 grand. There maybe could have been a better way to have done it. Because, I don't know, I, I sort of read the initial headlines when it first came out and I not being a Nirvana fan, I didn't even particularly care too much. But I suppose I found myself almost seeing where the kid was coming from in that the estate, the Nirvana estate, Kurt Cobain, Dave Grohl, and forgive me, the bassist, have gone on to, to, to continue to profit off of that. Now, they obviously did 100% of the work, but yeah. the, the royalties are there and, well, screw it. Like, write up a contract give the kid a hundred grand and tell him to fuck off like say he can't come back from that like mm. it's it is pocket change to those guys but they won't because capitalism's a thing and they'll defend themselves which eh, f- fair enough would i just give away a hundred grand of my money on a whim for a kid that asked for it because he was a naked baby 20 odd 25 years ago probably not 30 years ago now fuck 30 next year yeah this but, year, this year. Yeah, I, 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 maybe I didn't care that much about the story. I don't know. I think there's a principle of it. Like, yeah, you're right. You know, I'm sure they're not, you know, desperate for money, but it feels like he's desperate for money. It feels yeah. like, you know, it's, you know, I, I need some money. Like, I'm just going to do this thing even, and I'm going to look like a twat to the, the whole wide world, but like, I might have 150 grand times three. You know what I mean? Maybe even four if they get. Pat's yeah. Involved, you know? So could they? Is is there a conceivable plan here where they're like, "All right, kid, you want some money? Fine. Here's a contract. You can't ask for this again. You are accepting this payment at this moment in time. Sound mind and body. Blah 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 blah. Now fuck off. It has to I, be. I, I, I don't know. I think it's the, the the difficulty is though is that he's throwing some pretty wild accusations about the the nature of the picture which if he hadn't pushed those buttons if he'd literally stuck to stuck to the 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 non-greedy you know i am i have been used as a product against my will at the time signed off by my parents i feel i am entitled to a percentage being the the visual thing that people that reminds people of nirvana Maybe you'd have some sound, but to call it like child pornography is fucking bent. That is so broken. It's such a yeah. twisted view. I mean, I think the other side of it as well, like taking the the the, the ridiculous paedophilia side out of it. You know, like I think if they if they give in to this guy, they're setting a potentially dangerous precedence as well. For, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, how many? I mean, obviously, I, I can't see how many child peni I've seen on an album cover uh, in my life but I think there's that much but like there, there's loads of people that have been on album covers for 
a fixed fee you know what i mean and you know if, if this kid does get away with this then you know it's like oh well you know i want more money because you know you can kind of see my breasts on deft ones around the fur you know what i mean um the first cover that sort of came to my mind as well and no you're you're 100 percent there like you're you're absolutely right it, it, it could set a very dangerous precedent going ahead that people could start to exploit this stuff but then i almost just come back to the point where like well if they're big enough and they're famous enough and that's enough of a reason to ask then is it really really going to damage these guys that much probably not but maybe i'm just rooting for the underdog here definitely not rooting, for, rooting the for the underdog but <laughs> definitely not on this there's one. nothing there's nothing wrong with rooting for the underdog but i don't i don't believe this guy's the underdog you know i don't think uh, it's, i don't think it's a good faith um argument that he's coming back with i think i think it does it reeks of desperation and and something suing suing art feels wrong as well you know what i mean like yeah i know that's a really sort of like bizarre way to put it but he's suing a piece of art and that doesn't feel very right yeah well we've gone off topic there a little bit haven't we drastically <laughs> quite i still like hundred reasons <laughs> <laughs> i must say listening to these two albums has been a bit of it has been a total like nostalgia trip and reminded me that i listened to a lot more music like this before really progressing into or really getting my, my, my feet wet into the metal world that i probably then uh, really got into maybe about a year and a bit later which is where the what we talked about last week talking about kill switch engage really got me thinking like what was my journey and it was almost as if there was this last hurrah before i really went head first into metal and I was like let's just give let's just give the British indie rock one last chance let's see what it can do <laughs> the 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 examples I think that we've we've listened to this week of Neon Handshake and Ideas Above a Station were, were a great show from Keith so thanks for that absolutely absolutely no it's been great I mean I will say I still listen to 100 Reasons fairly regularly Neon Handshake it's been a while though and yeah I've really enjoyed listening to it again interesting little side note is that like, I'm actually in the process of uh, of remaking some of the music that I wrote from that era which has been uh, influenced by the that sort of uh, 100 Reasons thing in fact one of the songs maybe been influenced a little too much but we'll just leave <laughs> that one alone so yeah like it, it's great because it's topical for me at the moment because like I'm kind of reworking material that I wrote in 2000 to 2003 I think so yeah it's, it's, it has been really cool I was just looking at Hells for Heroes second album that came out in 2006 Transmit Disrupt mm. and I remember the single Kimichi I haven't listened to it in preparation for today, but I've also just noticed two names that Lav will absolutely hate because we've discussed it before. There's an track five is Untitled One. Fucking get in the bin. Track nine <laughs> is Untitled Two. Two of them. Two untitled tracks. Just name your tracks, boys. Like, I mean, I've not listened to it, so if they're instrumentals, uh, could could you get away with it? I don't know. Untitled One. Uh, they must be. They must be, because Untitled 1 is 1 minute 6 and Untitled 2 is 49 seconds. The, honestly, the only pass I'll give on it is if they're completely instrumental, like Segway tracks. I know what the, the reference is going back to Finch, what it is to burn. They have a track called Untitled, and it's a full-blown track. It's a full-blown guitars, drums, bass, vocals. It's got lyrics, and they called it Untitled. I'm like, get in the fucking sea. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you, man, for sure. 
That's a little gripe off my shoulders. Anyway, <laughs> Jamie, uh, tell us, is there anything that you're up to at the moment that you'd like to, to tell our listeners about? Is there anything you want to push or anything you want to tell us about? Yes. So Project Rebuild is me trying to have a career after COVID again, because I didn't for ages. So uh, yes, I am taking on recordings, productions, mixes. Uh, I'm working out of the amazing Post Electric Studio in Edinburgh, which has is without a doubt one of the best studios in Scotland. Sounds fantastic. I'm really enjoying working there. So if you have a band uh, or you're an artist and you want to make some music, uh, I'm really into making big chunky wide productions and i also have my own band as well uh, my own original band denomalous and uh, we're looking forward to getting back on track as well uh, my website's www.recordingedinburgh.co.uk and most of my social media handles are jamie turnbull producer so yeah give me work because i like things like money and food and booze please Good plan. That all sounds absolutely reasonable. <laughs> it's like, why would you like this job? I like to eat. Don't we all? Yep, absolutely. So, but yeah, no, I would, uh, you know, there, there's space in the diary. There's there's lots of cool things happening. Just finished an album uh, with a brilliant man called Battalion of Flies. Got another Dogs to More album next month, but there is space for more. I want to see us. Nice one, man. Glad to hear it. And thanks very much for coming on to talk these two pretty good great albums with us and i suppose at this point lav do i take us home or do you take us well home? i need to say what we're doing next week do i not oh we do this we're, we're starting to slip here man we're really losing track of this what what's the chat for next week what are we going to cover well we're in the we're in that because hell is for heroes got mentioned i think i'm going to have to pick a band who mentioned hell is for heroes in one of their songs because hell is for heroes at the time of this song being released or this album being written they had another single out Top 40 smash, no doubt. The album I want to do is Ruben Race Cars, Race Car Backwards. Right. And that is that is the the epitome of this Brit rock sound. And I would really like to talk about that, its influence, and where we went to with it. It's it's your climax, it's your pinnacle. pinnacle. It's where you <laughs> sort of it's, it's the last time I remember met. liking not metal okay if that makes sense so the first time i remember being like this isn't metal and i like it yeah side note i had to explain to my wife last night what dubstep was she missed that entire phase <laughs> did you just what did you do did you just go wob, 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 wob. i kind of i sort of went <laughs> on to uh, i kind of went on to um, spotify and just dubstep came up with dubstep classics had a look i was like oh yeah i recognize some of these songs nero put that on chasing status put that on put on the larue going in for the kill remix and then i wasn't really i wasn't really getting any, like, any the skrillex womp, womp. Was, well this is it i wasn't getting the the dub horn like the the womp sound that i wanted and i'm like oh right fuck it basically this is the song that started it people heard this and they lost their shit and then i played nice sprites and scary monsters and she was like yeah i don't get it and i'm like yeah a lot of people <laughs> didn't <laughs> Ah, that was the future, man. Remember when dubstep was the future? Bloody hell. Well, anyway, right. I saw Skrillex at Corn Exchange. Had a fucking great nice. time. Excellent. Well, okay, lad. Will you, will you take us home? Are you, or am I taking us well, home? Well, no, I was going to say thank you very much, Keith. Take us home. Okay, this has been a live or just blethering with Jamie Turnbull. We've been discussing 
Hells for Heroes and 100 Reasons. Catch us on our socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're still on YouTube, apparently. Uh, at AOGB Podcast. Uh, drop us a little DM or a little comment. And next week on Alive or Just Blazing, we'll be discussing Race Car is Race Car Backwards by Ruben. Thank you very much. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.